0: Open there as we come to study this evening verses 22 to 31 of the Psalm. We thought on Friday evening about the forsaken king, this morning about the suffering king, and this evening, in this last portion of the Psalm, we think about the triumphant king. The triumphant king. It's incredible how quickly violent storms can sometimes change to calm and peace very, very quickly. I really can't say I have much experience of seeing that happen on the on the seas, but those who have sailed on the seas for any length of time have likely lived to experience that. That the worst storms can sometimes so quickly turn into great peace and calm. That's how Charles Spurgeon uh, likens the dramatic change in Psalm twenty-one from verse, or, or, sorry, in Psalm twenty-two, verse twenty-one, uh, the change from there into the rest of the psalm. Spurgeon says, from a horrible tempest, all is changed to calm. The darkness of Calvary at length passed away from the face of nature and from the soul of the Redeemer. Spurgeon is certainly right there in saying that in his final moments on the cross, Christ's thoughts turned away from the pain and the suffering that he had endured so intensely. And he was encouraged by what he knew lay ahead. We get a hint of that in the gospel account that tells us that Jesus said to the thief beside him today you will be with me in paradise and so we know from those words that Jesus was already thinking about what lay ahead for him when he took his last breath. But again Psalm 22 plays this unique role in scripture really in Taking us into the mind and the thoughts of Christ as he was dying on the cross. And it shows us here that before he took his dying breath, Christ was full of hope. He was full of hope. And so friends, what we have in this last portion of the psalm is the Lord Jesus on the cross. Looking ahead to a wonderful future. Looking ahead to the kingdom secured. Looking ahead to the joy that his finished work would bring to his saved people. The Lord's Supper is not only a memorial, it's not just an act of remembrance, it is that, but it also is an act of, uh, if you like, expectation. It's, it's something we do to remind ourselves of our future. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until all the work that he did at the cross finally sees its fulfillment in the full number of his people gathered together and enjoying everlasting life. These things were on the mind of Christ, even as he took his last breath on the cross. And so we want to consider uh, the comfort and joy that he had this evening from looking ahead to his ultimate triumph. And so in reflecting upon his work on the cross, uh, Christ here, first of all this evening, we see in this psalm, he could reflect on a completed work, a completed work. John 19 verse 30 tells us that some of Jesus' last words were, it is finished. John says that with those words, he gave up his spirit. That's, those, those words are perhaps could have been the loud shout That the other gospel writers record, it could well have been that that loud shout was, It is finished. And Psalm 22 ends with a very similar statement. If you look at the very last verse, the last line of the Psalm, He has done it. He has done it. Despite the forsakenness of God and the hatred of his enemies, at last the moment came when Jesus on the cross could say, finished, done, complete. We thought on Friday night about how Jesus had been forsaken by God the Father, how the Father had, uh, if we can say it this way, turned his face away from the Son and how awful that experience was for Christ, those hours of darkness and abandonment, punished and afflicted by the Father. But the moment came, friends, when the forsakenness of the Son was finished The moment came when God's wrath and anger was entirely spent upon Jesus. And when the father was no longer turned away from his son. Look at verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. That means he hasn't kept on forever hiding his face from him. He did it, but he stops doing it. He has heard when he cried to him. The moment came when the forsakenness of the son was finished. The moment also came when Jesus suffering at the hands of sinful men was finished. We thought this morning about the mockery of those bloodthirsty men at the foot of his cross. Who were acting like animals the psalm told us. Excitedly watching to see when Jesus would die. But in verse 29, Jesus is again looking ahead into the future when mockers and haters will be under his rule and they will be silenced. Verse 28, kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. No more mocking. Only silence on the one hand or praise on the other. And all of this is here to emphasize to us, friends, that our salvation is... Has been secured. We'll think more about the call to worship that Jesus gives us in verses 24, 22 to 24 in a moment. But that worship is based on the fact that salvation is secured. There is nothing else that needs to be done, there is no one else that needs to come, there is no great act of redeeming power or sacrifice that needs to be made. And some of the Psalms that we sing remind us of this. Psalm 96, for example, tells us to sing a new song. As I've told you probably many times, that means a song of rescue, a song of victory. And we sing in that Psalm of God's right arm providing salvation for him. King David experienced that many times on the battlefield. And King Jesus experienced that on his battlefield as well. On his battlefield, Jesus secured our salvation fully and finally. The rescue was provided. It is finished. Nothing more needs to be done for our salvation to be secured. It's important to understand, friends, to to think this through, that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, it doesn't just make salvation possible. It's not something that is step one And then there are other things that we need to add on to secure our salvation. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, believe. They believe that Jesus' death on the cross gives us a clean record to to get us going, so to speak. And that we need to go out and add to that record or earn our, our way to God by our good works. Jesus did not make salvation a possibility. He made it a certainty. Paul said to the jailer in Philippi, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Nothing else to do except believe in the work, believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Repent, follow him, and your salvation is a certainty. Your forgiveness of sins is a certainty, not a possibility. Reformed Christians refer to this as penal substitutionary atonement. That's what we believe Jesus has done for us at the cross. He has provided penal substitutionary atonement. Maybe it sounds all very strange. It's actually very simple. Penal comes from the word penalty. Jesus has paid the price, paid the penalty for our sins. If you're caught speeding in your car, you get what kind of points? Penalty points. Unless you get to go one of those speed awareness courses. But if you've already gone to that, It's penalty point time. There is a penalty to be paid for breaking the law. There's a penalty to be paid on the the, the rugby pitch or the football pitch. If someone fouls someone in the wrong area, there's a penalty. Your team will suffer for it. And likewise, friends, for our rule breaking, there is a penalty to be paid. Blood is required. for our sins a sacrifice is required for our sins and that is what Christ has provided penal atonement but it's also penal substitutionary atonement jesus substitutes himself for us again you think of the sports field and someone can't go on any longer they're not able to do what they were supposed to go out and do they're injured or or the, the manager decides they're, they're not good enough And so a substitute is made. And similarly Jesus is our substitute. We are unable to do what God has commanded us to do. To keep his law perfectly. To live without sin. Jesus has offered up his perfect life. His perfect record. His perfect law keeping. As a substitute for us. Penal substitutionary atonement. And and with atonement the clue is really in the word if you break it down. At one meant. Jesus makes amends for our sin. A holy God has been offended by our sin. Separation has come between us and our God. We thought about that on Friday evening. As we thought about Christ's forsakenness. That a holy God must punish sin. A holy God cannot endure fellowship with sinners. But Jesus Christ As Paul describes in more detail in Romans and in some of the other epistles, he has made peace between us and God. At one, we're at one with God again. Penal, substitutionary atonement. Jesus has made salvation a certainty for his people. Roman Catholicism says that salvation isn't finished. That's what's being communicated through the Mass, for example. That Christ's body and blood have to be offered again and again and again. And you better be there to receive it. And then you better go out and add to that with your own good works. And then you might end up in heaven or you might have to go to purgatory first. So salvation isn't finished according to that theology. Islam also says that salvation isn't finished. And in fact, it might never be. There is no assurance in the religion of Islam. In fact, devout Muslims would see the idea of assurance as uh, dangerous. That it, it sort of means you rest on your laurels. You need to be praying five times a day. You need to get yourself to Mecca. Don't eat the wrong foods. Be generous. And you might be all right. But you might not. Jehovah's Witnessism, as I've mentioned already is a theology that says salvation isn't finished. Jesus has only given us a second chance to get it right the, ne- the next time around. Buddhism says that salvation isn't finished unless you reach nirvana, you're coming back in some other form of life and you have to give it another go. There is salvation in no one else. There is good news nowhere else. But God in his word, friends, says he has done it. It is finished. And if we need something to be thankful for at this, our communion Thanksgiving service, should we not be thankful for that? That it is by grace that we are saved, through faith in the finished work of Christ. How reassuring that is. What a joyful thought for Jesus as his life came to an end on the cross that he knew. It's worth it. It's finished. No one ever needs to do anything like this ever again. We live in a culture that demands we perform. Some of you are under great pressure in your workplaces or in your studies to perform or to achieve, to meet certain targets. And of course it's good to be driven and it's good to work hard. But sometimes as we serve in the church, we lose sight of Jesus and we begin to compare ourselves to others. In despair, we, we say, I'm not doing as much as he or she is doing. I don't have the gifts that they have. And we, and we end up in despair and we end up uh, working, if not in, in theory and in practice, we're, we're living according to a works righteousness. Or in pride, we think to ourselves, well, I'm not living like that. Or I'm not doing the things they're doing. Or I'm doing far more to serve the church local or further afield. And again, that's that's works righteousness. That's us becoming our own little saviors. However much or little we do, however much or little we are gifted or capable of, friends, Jesus Christ has secured our salvation. Anything we do is out of gratitude and thanksgiving and Love for the Saviour who has gifted salvation to us. Of course, this also gives us great assurance in times of suffering. And we thought about this this morning at the Lord's table. One way or another, our suffering is not going to last forever. Sickness, bereavement, persecution. It will come to an end. It came to an end for Christ on the cross. It will come to an end for us sooner or later. You will see your Saviour and you will suffer no more. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Those are not words to trot out glibly, I trust. But they are words to encourage us nonetheless, to reassure us. For us one day the suffering will be finished. On the cross, Jesus knew that his sufferings were about to be finished and that an eternity of joy would not even be worth comparing with what he endured at the cross. Praise God. Christ, as he died on the cross, could reflect upon a completed work. But then secondly, uh, as we reflect upon Christ's death on the cross, uh, we have a call to worship call to worship and we see that in verses 22 to 26 the wonderful news that Jesus has finished the work of securing salvation is why we should worship God it's what is to fuel our worship it is what is uh, what is driving our worship notice verse 22 I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will praise you look also at verse 25 from you comes my praise where in the great congregation, my vows I will perform In that language of vows being performed that 's Old Testament law language Leviticus seven, Deuteronomy sixteen speak about people making vows, asking for god 's help to carry out a task, and upon seeing that task completed, then the promise is i 'll come back, and I will worship and give thanks to my God for the help that He has provided That was there public worshipful response to what God had done for them. And not only that, but they would invite others to come and to share with them in the in the worship of God and in the paying of vows. They would celebrate with worship and with feasting. And so Jesus here says that in thankfulness for his God answering his prayers, he will praise God. Christ here in his humanity as 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 God the Son in human flesh, He will invite His brothers, He says, to praise God. He will tell people of what has happened. It's Old Testament law language, but it's also New Testament resurrection language. This language of of coming and and worshipping God for what He has done. Matthew 28, verse 10. The risen Jesus, Matthew 28, verse 10. Jesus meets the woman who had come to his tomb. And he says to the woman, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. One of Jesus' first resurrection words recorded. Brothers, tell my brothers what has happened. And when the risen Jesus did find his brothers, what did he say to them? Luke 24 verse 44. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The risen Jesus led his brother's friends in worship, in Bible study. Telling them about what he had done and what God the Father had done. And what was the reaction of the disciples? What was the reaction of Thomas when he stopped doubting and believed? John 20 verse 28. My Lord and my God. He worshipped. He saw what God had done. He saw the resurrected son who had been forsaken and who had suffered but now was triumphant. He worshipped. That's the right response To the finished work of Jesus friends. It's to worship God. John Piper has rightly said. Mission exists. Because worship doesn't. In other words. The whole reason the gospel should be proclaimed. Is so that men and women and boys and girls. Will then join the body of Christ. In worshipping. For all that God has done. Look at verse 23. You who fear the Lord praise him. Literally that means boast in him. The world, the world tells us to boast in ourselves. You know, The world is obsessed with self. Our culture is obsessed with self. Celebrities, the people uh, that are lifted up and made much of, they're some of the most miserable people on the earth. Because there's a part of them that knows, well, why are people so obsessed with me? Just another human being, we don't have any special powers. Yes, they may be of great talents that we enjoy, but they're not to be fawned over and, and worshipped and so they end up so miserable some of them. They can't handle the, the false, the, the idolatry and the, the worship that they receive. God is worthy of our praise and our boasts. We're to praise him we're to boast in the Lord to give thanks for him securing our salvation. You who fear the Lord praise him. It's what this day is for Morning and evening, setting aside our ordinary activities and giving thanks for what Christ has done for us. Notice, by the way, where does King Jesus stand in this worship service? Where is he positioned? King David, and then after him, King Jesus. Where do they stand as their people worship God? Do they stand off to the side? Do they stand apart? Do they stand up on a, on a stage? No, look at verse 22. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. In the midst of the congregation. There's different ways we might tease that thought out. Jesus being in the midst of the congregation. Of course, in his earthly life, he worshipped at the synagogue week by week, honouring, keeping the Sabbath day as he should. He was there uh, as a devoted Jewish man at the appointed times. He was amongst God's people for worship. Friends, he's still amongst God's people for worship today. As we gather here in Bury Lane or wherever else we might gather, as we gather in our homes, as we gather, some of us in Synod this week, as we get wherever it is that we gather for worship, Jesus is with the congregation. He's in our midst and he's leading us in our worship. I don't really like the term worship leader that's used in the wider church, uh, Many, uh, oftentimes in the wider church today. Speaking of uh, some human person who maybe organizes the singing or the the music or whatever else might be going on. We don't need, uh, in a sense, a human worship leader. Yes, as the pastor, I, I announce the Psalms and I choose the Psalms. But Jesus Christ is our worship leader. We sing the words that he has given us We pray according to the words that he has given us. We open up the word that he has given us. He is our worship leader. He is in the midst of us where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am amongst them, he said. When the people of God gather to celebrate what he has done, Jesus is leading the singing. Jesus is leading the prayers. Jesus is speaking through his word. Friends, meditate upon that as you prepare your hearts each week to come here for worship. Think about that even in the the moment as we stand to sing. That Christ is amongst us as we sing. And as we pray. And as the preacher begins. Spurgeon again says, When Christ communes with our hearts concerning his divine truth, joyful praise is the sure result. And that invites the question for some believers today never mind, unbelievers why are you not there when God's people gather for worship? If there's a set time and appointed time that you know that God's people will be meeting for worship, why would you not want to be there? If Christ is going to be there, if our worship leader is offering to be there to bless us as we gather for worship. Of course, there are legitimate needs and responsibilities that take us away from time to time, understand that. But where we are able, where we are free to do so, should we not come to the place that Christ says, There I will be amongst you? Perhaps often the reason that we aren't joyful in our worship is because we haven't considered this closely enough, we haven't stopped to consider the fact that Christ has secured our salvation. Again, that's what fuels our worship, that he has finished it, that he has done it. Perhaps we've allowed our minds to dwell on other things, even right up to the moment that we arrive at the place of worship. In the week ahead, friends, make time in your day to meditate upon Christ, to remember what he has done, to give thanks for it, to, to let it fuel your worship. And so as we reflect on the closing section of this psalm, we see a completed work. We see a call to worship. And thirdly and finally we see a commitment to witness. A commitment to witness. And and this ties in with what I've been saying already. But to focus more now upon the witnessing aspect. As Jesus' time on the cross comes to an end. His gaze stretches even further into the future. He doesn't just look forward to leading his brothers in the worship of God. He looks forward to all the nations hearing the good news of what he has done. Look at verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. What did Jesus say when he came to the earth? I am the bread of life. He can in the fullest sense feed those who are hungry. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Look also at verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Sense of the language there seems to be that all types of people, in all types of places, in all kinds of situations, will hear the good news and come to worship God, from the prosperous to the poor, from the afflicted to the affluent, everyone in between. They will hear and they will praise. Look at verse twenty-eight. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. What a wonderful verse. He rules over the nations. There's no corner of the universe, a famous theologian said, over which Christ does not declare mine. Why are we sending a man and his wife to Limerick on Friday? Why would we do that? Why would we commit time and effort? Why would we ask a man and his wife to uproot their lives and go to a city hundreds of miles away We do it for this very reason friends in Psalm 22 verse 28 because kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. There are 94,000 people in Limerick most of whom spiritually speaking do not know their right hand from their left. They don't know about this great king. They don't know about the work that he has done, the forsakenness and the suffering that he endured for sin to be atoned for. And so we send someone and we pray for that man and we trust that God will bring fruit from that work and from the other works that we support as well. He deserves to rule over us all and he does rule over us all. And he's a better ruler than any human ruler, even those who have good intentions, even those who seek to honour God in the public sphere. Christ is the perfect ruler. He's a better role model and figurehead and uh, and object of affection than the most impressive celebrity or uh, the most influential influencer. They're all flawed. They fall short. But King Jesus is alive and he is reigning and he has secured our salvation and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22 verses 27 and 28 weren't just on Jesus' mind at Calvary. It seems the words of this psalm were also on his mind right before his ascension. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, To observe all that I have commanded you. You see how the good news of Psalm 22 comes out in the great commission of Jesus Christ. I rule the nations, therefore you go to the nations. God willing, over the next few weeks, coming up to the summer, we're going to think much more about this whole uh, topic of our, our witness, both our personal daily witness, our corporate witness, our evangelism. But that's why we do it because Christ the King has told us to do it. To share this good news. Then there's this great promise in verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Note the certainty there. They shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. It will happen. All kinds of people from all kinds of places have and will bow the knee to King Jesus. And if they don't choose to do it now, they will have to do it when he returns. Friends, here we have a reminder from our king that we must be committed to witnessing to the nations. But not only to the nations. Look also at verse 30. Posterity, that just means descendants, shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people Yet unborn. We also have a commitment to our children. To the coming generation. The men and women and the future leaders that they will be of of our world. And by God's grace, the church. Every child and every congregation is a blessing from God. They're precious to us before they're even born. Because right here in his word, God says that they are. That they too are to hear about Jesus Christ. That's why, boys and girls, we want you here so that you get to hear about Jesus Christ. We want you here so that you get to learn more about Jesus Christ and what it means to follow him and how you can serve him. Not just when you get older, but even perhaps now, whatever age you are this evening. And there may be weeks where your friends have invited you to do something else on the Lord's Day. Something that would be loads of fun. Everyone else is going. You feel like you're missing out. But your mum and dad have said no because they want you, not because they they want to spoil your fun, not because they just feel like saying no. In fact, it would be much easier for them sometimes to say yes, go ahead. But they want you here because knowing Jesus and learning more about Jesus is the most important thing you could ever do. Sam says we're, be, we're to be committed to witnessing to the coming generations, to people yet unborn. There are those physically unborn. There are also those who, as yet, are spiritually unborn. Jesus told Nicodemus, You must be born again. That's the need of those around us as well. And so, as we close our communion season, what we've heard should impact our worship and it should impact our witness to the nations, to our children. To our grandchildren. What's our response going to be to the finished work of Jesus Christ? Ralph Davis tells the story of two of Charles Hodge's children. Hodge was a Presbyterian minister in America in the 1800s. He was president of Princeton Theological Seminary, training up pastors and missionaries. In 1833, Hodge's son, Archibald, aged 10, and his daughter, Mary, aged eight, wrote a letter and sent it with a man, Mr. James Eckhart. And James Eckhart was about to graduate from Princeton and go off to be an overseas missionary. And the letter of this eight-year-old and 10-year-old was simply addressed to the heathen, the unbelievers to whom Mr. Eckhart would witness. And here's what their letter said. Dear heathen, The Lord Jesus Christ has promised that the time shall come when all the ends of the earth shall be his kingdom. And if this was promised by a being who cannot lie, why not help it to come sooner by reading the Bible and attending to the words of your teachers and loving God and renouncing your idols, taking Christianity into your temples. Soon there will not be a nation, no, not a space of ground as large as a footstep, that will want a missionary. My sister and myself have, by small self-denials, procured $2, which are enclosed in this letter, to buy tracts and Bibles to teach you. Signed, Archibald Alexander Hodge and Mary Elizabeth Hodge, friends of the heathen. There's a commitment from little children to witnessing to the nation's, And of making the finished work of Jesus Christ known. There's no doubt about Archibald and Mary's commitment. What about ours? Sometimes we wish that the kingdom would come sooner. Archibald and Mary were very convinced that the kingdom would come soon. Jesus has said, I am coming soon. Maybe the kingdom would come sooner, friends, if we prayed for it to come more often. And witnessed to the reality of that kingdom with more vigour. Until all families and all ends of the earth remember and turn to the Lord. Until the last generation still unborn hears us declare the good news of Psalm 22. Then, when it comes to securing salvation for sinners. Everlasting life. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, has done it. Amen.